Father, we thank you for your word that we get to open up every Lord's Day morning. Father, um, we are not capable of plumbing the depths of what your word has to say or mining the meaning out of it. Uh, because we are sinners, Lord, uh, we are prone to have hard hearts that are not willing to listen uh, to what your word has to tell us. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts uh, to hear your word, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts, um, hearts that are ready to, to listen to your word and to go wherever your word would take us. Um, help us to trust you more than we trust ourselves. We pray that your spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that uh, we would not be the same people leaving here that we were coming, uh, that your word would refine us, Lord, and prune us and make us more like our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians 14 this morning, and we're looking at the first 12 verses. And I'll go ahead and I'll read those for us. Chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, or of knowledge, or of prophecy, or of teaching. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will, it, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. If you have not yet surrendered your life and faith to Jesus Christ, then you are wasting your life the life that he has given you. And if you have given your life to Christ, but you have fallen into the sin of selfish laziness such that you are concerned only about yourself and are not lifting a finger in service to God or to his people or to the lost, then you are wasting the new life that he has given to you. You are wasting your life on yourself. Why not spend your life on God? Why not spend your life on the ones whom God has made your neighbors. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, became a man, and he died on the cross for the sins of his people, and he rose from the dead for the glory of God and for the salvation of his people. 
And he did that not simply to save his people from their just deserts of the fires of hell. He did it to make them his kind of people, a people who would be zealous for the glory of God and for the good of others, just like he is. Did we not read that in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14? Verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 says that he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you want to belong to Jesus? Do you want to be transformed and to be a part of his people, a people who are zealous not about themselves, but for the glory of God and the good of his people? If you do want that, then turn from your sins and in faith look to the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and call on his name to save you through what he's accomplished on behalf of sinners. If you call on him, he will make you his own. He will make you a part of his people who he is transforming to be just like himself, someone who is zealous for the glory of God and for the good of others. And if you would like to talk with someone more about that, please see myself or Barney or Owen, and we would love to tell you more about Jesus Christ. He is the one who can forgive you, and he is the one who can transform you. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is trying to help believers not waste their new life in Christ. That's because that is what they've been doing thus far. Throughout this letter, we have seen that these believers are entirely concerned about themselves rather than about the God who saved them or the ones who are their brothers and sisters whom that God has saved. They are wasting not only their new life in Christ, but the giftedness that they have been given in Christ that was given to them for the express purpose of serving others rather than themselves. So Paul, throughout chapter 12 and 13 and 14, he's been dealing with just this one facet of their selfishness, which is how they're using the gifts that they have been given. And he's continuing to address this with them in chapter 14. And in this chapter, he is speaking to them particularly about the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues. In verses 1 through 5, we see Paul exhort these believers to pursue prophecy. But we have to understand that he is exhorting them to pursue prophecy for the good of the church, not for themselves. That's what we're seeing in verses 1 through 5. We're seeing him call on these believers to be pursuing prophecy for the church, not self. Look at verse 1. Paul begins this chapter by issuing the command, pursue love. Pursue love. We have to remember that love, which is what? Being committed to the good of the other rather than self. We have to remember that love is not something that comes automatically or naturally to us. We are by nature sinners, which means that we are by nature selfish in and of ourselves, apart from the grace of God. The word that Paul uses here for pursue is a very strong word, 
According to the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, in certain contexts, this word means to move rapidly and decisively toward an object. We were doing a lot of that last night as we sought to mow each other down with our Nerf blasters. In other contexts, this word means to harass someone or persecute, which is, again, a good description of what we were doing last night. In contexts like the one we're looking at today, in 1 Corinthians 14.1, it means to follow in haste in order to find something. So when he says pursue love, he is not talking about some kind of passive process where I'm sitting on my couch discouraged over my selfishness and I'm just waiting for God to get around to finally zap me with some more love so I can be loving. No, we are to pursue love. Pursue it. And how do we do that? Well, it's pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's pretty simple. We pursue love by making use of the means of grace that God has given us by which he transforms us from the inside out. If God is love, then pursuing love has to start where? With pursuing God. Pursuing Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. We grow in love by encountering God in his word, by encountering him in prayer, by encountering him in fellowshipping with other believers, and by walking with him in obedience. If you and I do not spend time with God in his word, or in prayer, or in fellowship with other believers, or in obeying him, you and I are not going to grow in love. It simply is not going to happen. You must pursue love. Only God can make us loving like Paul showed us in chapter 13. Pursue God and he will make you that. In chapter 14, verse 1, Paul continues. He says, pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Paul here picks up where he left off in chapter 12, verse 31. At the end of that chapter, in verse 31, he said, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then in chapter 13, he went into that discourse on love. And by what he said in chapter 13 and by this opening commandment in verse 1 to pursue love, we could get the impression that spiritual gifts are irrelevant and unnecessary, that all we need is love. If we love one another, you know, that's, that's enough. We don't need spiritual gifts. But Paul says, no, pursue these things. He's not saying, I didn't, by all that I said on love, I'm not saying don't pursue spiritual gifts. He's making it clear that he still wants them to be zealous about spiritual gifts. He's simply, by saying all that he did in chapter 13, he was simply making clear that without love, spiritual gifts will not accomplish anything. Not at all. Paul said all that he had to say about love because he wanted these believers to use their gifts out of love for one another rather than out of self-love. He wanted them to be zealous for the gifts in a way that flowed out of their zeal for the good of one another. The spiritual gifts are given to us by God to build up one another, not ourselves, one another. A spiritual gift used on self is a spiritual gift that is largely wasted. 
So if these believers got a handle on what love is, and if they pursued love and they grew in love by pursuing God, then the love that God would enable them to live out would cause them to use their spiritual gifts in service to one another. Spiritual gifts were the tools that they were to use. Love was the motivation and the guide rail on how they were to use those gifts. So Paul reiterates the fact that he wants them to be zealous for spiritual gifts, but especially that they would prophesy, especially that they would prophesy. From what we looked at last week regarding the nature of prophecy, we can understand just from the nature of the gift why Paul would especially want them to be zealous about prophecy. Because what is prophecy? Prophecy is an undiluted, unaltered, inerrant, infallible message from God himself spoken through the mouth of his spokesman, a prophet. The word of God is the most precious thing in the life of the church, is it not? It is his revealing of himself to his people. The time period in which Paul was writing this letter was one in which the canon of Scripture was still being written. According to one list I saw, 1 Corinthians was only the seventh book of the New Testament to be written. So when Paul put his pen down, when he finished this letter, there were still 20 books of the New Testament canon to be written. It was written around the mid-50s A.D., So the faith once for all delivered to the saints was still in the process of being delivered to the saints. There were things believers needed to know that they didn't have resources to tell them apart from someone delivering to them the word of God through prophecy. Therefore, the gift was still in full swing. And because they desperately needed God's word, Paul commanded them to be especially desirous of having that gift be prevalent in their church. In verses 2 to 4 of chapter 14, Paul explains more about why he wants them to be particularly zealous of the gift of prophecy. Verse 2, he explains, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. He's comparing the gift of speaking in tongues to the gift of prophecy. And he's going to show in these verses why he prefers them to have the gift of prophecy over tongues if he had to choose. He wants them to be especially zealous about that gift. He's not saying don't pursue the gift of tongues, but he's saying I want you to go hardest at this gift of prophecy. Last week, we saw that the gift of speaking in tongues was the ability to speak in a foreign language that one had never learned before. That was the gift. Tongue simply means language. And when Paul refers to the one who speaks in a tongue, he means someone in the congregation speaking a foreign language that they had not learned before. When exercising that gift, Such a person, Paul says in verse 2, speaks not to men, but to God. What does Paul mean by that when he says that the tongue speaker speaks not to men, but to God? Well, he explains. He says, The one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. So the tongue speaker speaks to God in the sense that God is the only one who can understand what he's saying. 
And the tongue speaker does not speak to men in the sense that men cannot understand what he is saying. It's kind of like when you're trying to have a conversation with someone, but it becomes clear that they don't understand what you're saying, or they're not listening, and you say, well, it's like I'm talking to the wall. They were speaking to God in the sense that God was the only one who could make out a word they were saying. Paul goes on in verse 2 to say that the tongue speaker in his spirit speaks mysteries. Tongue speaking functioned much the same way as prophecy did when the tongue speaker message was interpreted. Just as a prophet could reveal the mysteries of God. What is the mystery of God? Paul uses that word a lot. It's a truth that was previously hidden, but now in the new covenant it is revealed to God's people. Every time Paul uses that word, that's the way he uses it. The tongue speaker speaks mysteries. And if interpreted, he functioned much like a prophet. A prophet and an apostle would deliver mysteries to the people. The tongue of a speaker that was interpreted did the same thing. However, if the tongue speaker's message was not interpreted, those mysteries remained what? Mysteries, because nobody understood what he was saying. But Paul, in verse 3, brings in the contrast between tongue-speaking and prophecy. What does he say in verse 3? He's showing there that contrary to the uninterpreted tongue-speaker, the one prophesying could be understood. He says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The prophet would not go to his people and speak in a language that they did not understand. He would speak in the language that they spoke so they could understand it. They could be edified. That means built up. They could be exhorted and consoled. Verse 4 compares the results between the one who spoke in uninterpreted tongue and the one who prophesied. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, it's hard to land on exactly what Paul means when he says that the tongue speaker edifies himself. It's a bit of a pickle. In general, the meaning is clear. The one who is speaking in an uninterpreted tongue builds up himself, but no one else. What is not as clear is in what sense the tongue speaker builds up himself. How does the tongue speaker build up himself? Well, there's a few possible ways to interpret this. We'll go over three of them. First, when Paul says that the tongue speaker edifies himself, he may mean this in a purely negative light, speaking with sarcasm. The tongue speaker, in making a show out of his miraculous gift, is building himself up in the negative sense of exalting himself to the detriment of others. By not seeking to interpret the tongue for others, he's only caring about himself. Now, we understand that self-exaltation was a problem in this congregation in Corinth, wasn't it? But if Paul meant this statement to be taken negatively, you'd expect him to elaborate just a bit more in order to make it clear that he was being sarcastic. If you look through the rest of Paul's writings, you usually can't miss it when he's being sarcastic. It's in your face, pretty obvious. 
but it's not quite so clear here. And the context does not show that he really means it negatively to be certain. From Paul's tone, it appears that the tongue speaker really is edifying himself through the gift. But the question is how? How? That brings us to a second interpretation. This view says that when Paul speaks of the tongue speaker edifying himself, what is meant is that the tongue speaker, though he does not understand the words he himself is saying, he is still edified by the experience in some indiscernible way. In this view, the tongue speaker is communicating with God on an unconscious level, and he's being positively impacted in a way that bypasses his mind. He's being built up in a way that surpasses comprehension. One problem with this interpretation is that Paul spends the rest of the chapter saying that the unintelligibility of the message makes it impossible for the church to be edified. It's a barrier that cannot be climbed over. So if this interpretation is correct, then why is it that the tongue speaker can be edified by a message he does not understand while the church cannot be edified by a message that they do not understand? Paul makes it crystal clear throughout the rest of chapter 14 that edification, our being built up, is entirely dependent on whether or not we can understand what is being spoken. How can the tongue speaker be edified if he doesn't know what he's saying? A second problem with this second interpretation is that it seems to contradict certain statements about the gift in this very chapter that imply that the mind of the tongue speaker is fully on board and engaged with what he is saying. For example, down in verse 15 of this chapter, Paul speaks of himself using this gift, and he says, I will pray with the Spirit. That's language for speaking in tongues. I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Paul speaks of praying and singing in a tongue. And the question is, in what sense can our prayers and songs of praise be legitimate and personal if we do not understand what we are praying or what we are singing? We saw in Matthew 6 today, Jesus' prohibition to not speak meaningless babble, piling up words, expecting that God will hear us. No, we're to pray meaningfully with our understanding. In verse 17 of chapter 14, Paul in describing the tongue speaker, says, for you are giving thanks well enough. Up in verse 16, he talks about them giving thanks in a tongue. And verse 17, he says, you are giving thanks well enough. But how can a person sincerely give thanks to God if he or she doesn't even know what he or she is saying? A third problem with this interpretation is that it seems to contradict what we are commanded to do with our minds throughout the rest of Scripture. Are we ever commanded to drop our minds out of gear or to empty our minds so that we can become an empty vessel for some other being to speak through? No, what are we told to do with our minds? To fill it 
with truth. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at Ephesians and Colossians. But Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18. Paul writes there, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he gives what the results of obedience to that command are. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now let's go over to Colossians 3.16. The question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Does it mean that we need to put our minds in park? That I need to empty myself of my own awareness and my own thoughts so that the Spirit can fill me and I can become this kind of mindless instrument in His hands? What does He mean? Well, Colossians 3.16, it'd help if I was in the right book. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And notice the results. They're the exact same as being filled with the Spirit. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we see here that being filled with the Spirit is not anti-mind. It's very much connected one with the other. Being filled with the Spirit is letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that is not something we can do apart from the exercise of our minds. In fact, according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, how does our edification, how does our spiritual transformation take place according to Romans 12, 2? It is through the renewing of our what? Our minds. Next, turn to 1 John chapter 4, where we are commanded to do something with our minds. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. John writes, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do we test the spirits? Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. That is, listens to what they say about God. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
So we are commanded to test the spirits by examining the doctrine that is being spoken. But how can we do that if we do not understand the words that are coming out of our mouth? How can we evaluate what we are saying to know whether or not that is the Holy Spirit or some other spirit? So that's the second interpretation. A third interpretation of this verse when Paul says that the tongue speaker edifies himself is this, that the tongue speaker does understand what he himself is saying and therefore is positively edified by what he is saying. Just as I am, I am personally edified by the study that I do in, in preparing to exercise the gift the Lord has given me, so the tongue speaker is edified by the glorious mysteries that he utters by the Holy Spirit. One problem with this interpretation, though, comes to light when we get to verse 13 in chapter 14. In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If the tongue speaker already understands what he's saying, why would he need to pray for the ability to interpret what he's saying? Now, none of these three interpretations, hopefully as you've seen, are without problems. But I lean toward this third one. And you say, how? Well, I'm not going to get into that. I'll get into it next week, Lord willing. And maybe by then I will have changed my mind. You'll have to show up and see. But that's the one I lean toward. I don't think the problem is insurmountable. So pray for me. Now, why did I walk us through those three different views? I walked us through that because I want us to think very carefully about the gift of speaking in tongues. When we experience things or when we hear the experiences of others surrounding what is claimed to be the gift of tongues, it is very important that we understand not only what this gift was in the early church, but also how it was to be used. If you hold to that second interpretation, that the tongue speaker is uttering words that he himself does not understand and that his mind is being bypassed and he's being influenced on a supposedly deeper level. And if that second interpretation is not correct, then the results of practicing tongue speaking in that way could be disastrous. If you think that tongue speaking involves emptying your mind and uttering words that you cannot understand, then you may be inadvertently opening yourself up to demonic forces. Emptying your mind and giving yourself over to uttering words that you cannot evaluate the meaning of seems to have more to do with paganism than it does with the Bible. So these are not things we can just play around with and make up our own definitions of. It has serious consequences for our walk with the Lord. We have to get it right. So Paul says the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself and no one else, because no one else can understand what he's saying. Of course, if a foreigner walked in who happened to speak the language that the tongue speaker was speaking, he would understand. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, didn't we? But when it came to the regular members and attenders of the local church, none of them were going to be edified by what they heard because that's not the language they spoke. They wouldn't understand. However, Contrary to the tongue speaker, the one who prophesies does build up the church 
because he can be understood. The prophet prophesies in a language that his audience is familiar with. That's why in verse 1, Paul wanted these believers to be especially zealous for the spiritual gift of prophecy because of the good it would do for the whole congregation. In verse 5 of chapter 14, Paul gives another clarification. We're going to see in this verse that Paul is not poo-pooing the gift of tongues. He's not saying that tongue speaking is a bad thing. How can the gift of any gift of the Spirit be a bad thing? It cannot. What does he say in verse 5? He says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Because the gift of speaking in tongues is a good thing, Paul wished they all could do it. But he wishes even more that they would prophesy. Now, remember back in chapter 12, verse 29, how Paul said that not everyone has the same gifts. Not everyone can prophesy. Not everyone can speak in tongues. But he wishes that they all could because of the edification that it would bring to the whole church. But prophecy is higher on his wish list than tongue speaking for this congregation. How so? It's because the one prophesying is able to build up the whole church while the tongue speaker cannot. But then Paul adds an exception in verse 5. He says, unless the tongue speaker what? Interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So that right there makes it very clear that Paul is not bashing tongue speaking in this chapter. What he's bashing is the improper practice of the gift. In the context of congregational worship, the gift of speaking in tongues was only edifying if it was accompanied by which gift? The gift of interpretation. What was that gift? Well, that gift involved translating or interpreting the foreign language uttered by the tongue speaker into a common tongue, a language that everybody understood so that they could all benefit by that message. If the tongue speaker's message was interpreted, it seemed to function in much the same way as prophecy. It built people up, exhorted them, consoled them. So tongue speaker could be just as edifying as prophecy if it was interpreted. Otherwise, it was useless when it came to building up the church. Paul does not want these believers pursuing what is useless to the church. And them using a gift to puff themselves up is utterly useless to the church. He wants them pursuing what will build up the church. So if they're pursuing love, they're going to pursue the gifts that build up the church, aren't they? If I love you and you're constantly having problems with your car, I might seek to grow in a little mechanical knowledge so that I can use that gift to help you with your car. So Paul wants them to pursue prophecy for the sake of the church, not for themselves. That brings us to verses 6 through 12. We're going to see Paul exhorting these believers to be pursuing the prophet P-R-O-F-I-T, the prophet of the church, not self. In verse 6, Paul says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, 
What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? These believers in Corinth, they had apparently been improperly using the gift of tongues in their corporate worship without considering how ineffective their use of it was being. Their concern for themselves had totally gotten in the way of their concern for one another. And so Paul uses himself as as an example, and he says, guys, listen, what if I came speaking to you the way that you are speaking to each other? Do you remember how how Paul came to them? Look back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul did not care what the Corinthians thought about him. All he cared about was what they thought about Jesus Christ, and so he preached Christ to them. If Paul had come to the Corinthians speaking in uninterpreted tongues that they did not understand, they would still be dead in their sin, wouldn't they? And once they had come to faith in Christ, if Paul had spent those 18 months in Corinth that he spent with them, if he spent that time showing up every Lord's Day uttering tongues, they would be even more immature than they were when he wrote this letter to them because they wouldn't have grown at all. Paul would have profited them nothing by such an approach. They were only profited by Paul when he delivered the truth to them through understandable revelations, words of knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. That's the only way they were going to be built up in the faith. And that's a pretty obvious thing to grasp, isn't it? That I cannot help you if you don't understand what I am saying. And though it's so obvious, Paul seeks to make it more obvious by giving illustrations. Verse 7, he says, Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? If we were to open our hymnals up to Amazing Grace, and the melody that we heard from the piano was the tune to Jingle Bells, We would all be pretty confused, wouldn't we? Or if the sound reverberating out of the guitar is not like any tune or rhythm that we've ever heard before, we're going to be lost as to what we're supposed to be singing. Verse 8, For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? On the battlefield, trumpets or bugles were, were critical tools to orchestrate troop movements. The human voice can only travel so far in the open air, but a trumpet blast or a bugle call, everybody can hear that all at once. It would take too long to try to send messengers around to tell everybody what they're supposed to do. And so the army needed to learn to identify certain calls from the bugle or the trumpet so that when that call sounded, they would all at the same time do that movement. 
What if the bugler got bored with the call to arms call? And he said, I'm going to try something new this time. Well, if the army has not been trained to recognize that call, they're all going to be doomed because they're going to be taken unawares from that approaching army. So it is with uninterpreted tongues. Neither head nor tail can be made out of what the tongue speaker says because it's being said in a language nobody knows. Verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. All the words the tongue speaker says, if not interpreted, will not sink into the hearts and minds of those who are listening. It's just a waste of breath. Paul gives us another illustration in verses 10 through 11. He says, There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. By all of this tongue-speaking going on without any interpretation, the church in Corinth was in danger of becoming more like an international airport where people are coming from all over and nobody understands what anybody else is saying. In the church, the redemption that God planned and that Jesus accomplished for us has resulted in our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. God's judgment scatters. We saw that at the Tower of Babel when God confused the languages. All the people were scattered across the face of the earth. We saw that effect of God's judgment upon Israel and Judah when they were exiled from their land, ripped out of their homeland, no doubt separated, families separated from one another. That's what the judgment of God does. But when we got to Acts chapter 2, we saw how the redemption of Christ began to draw people back together in the worship of him. In Acts chapter 2, last week we saw how those exiled, foreign-speaking Jews had gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and we saw how God used the tongue-speaking gift of Jesus' disciples to speak the native tongues of those foreign Jews in order to ready their hearts to hear the gospel message. And 3,000 souls were saved. But in the church at Corinth, the wrong use of tongue-speaking was threatening to undo the unity that had been accomplished by Christ's redemption. How so? Well, the language barrier is a major obstacle to believers being able to meaningfully fellowship with one another. For the Corinthians to be chattering to one another in uninterpreted tongues in the context of the local church was just raising up that language barrier. In Acts 2, tongue-speaking had served to break down that barrier. Why? Because people understood what was being said, right? But in the local church, the wrong use of tongue-speaking is erecting that barrier because people don't understand what is being said. Brothers and sisters in Christ cannot fellowship together or edify one another if they're speaking to one another in uninterpreted tongues. They are forced to relate to one another like one foreigner relates to another. You know, you're saying, where's the bathroom? And the other person, by seeing your movements, is 
thinking you're asking something else. Sorry, I was trying to, off the cuff, I'm not good at. But you know what I'm trying to get at. That is not how the members of a family relate to one another. What's Paul's conclusion then? Verse 12, he says, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Paul gives us some insight into the Corinthians here. He says, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts. When Paul commanded them back in verse 1 to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, he wasn't commanding them to do that because they had no interest in the spiritual gifts. No, they had plenty of interest in the spiritual gifts. But it was not the kind of interest that was in keeping with the love that Paul had called them to in chapter 13. Their desire and their zeal was a self-centered zeal rather than an others-centered zeal. Hence his command in verse 12, to seek to abound for the edification of the church. He's just told them that speaking in tongues without interpreting it for others cannot edify the church. You're like a, bar a barbarian to them. You're just speaking into the air. Nobody can understand what you're saying. But prophecy, on the other hand, being given in understandable language, can edify the church. So they should be particularly desirous for that gift. Not because of the status it would give them, but because of the good it would do others in the church. What can you and I learn from this? Well, though God has not seen fit to give everyone the same gift, it is not wrong to seek his face to give you the gifts needed for you to become a benefit to others in the church. It is wrong to desire giftedness and talents that will further your own selfish ambitions, but it is not wrong to seek giftedness and talents that will build up others in their walk with Christ. That is a good thing. That's the thing Paul commanded us to do in chapter 12, verse 31, when he said to earnestly desire the greater gifts, that is, the gifts that build others up the most. Yeah, ask the Lord for those. Be zealous about those. Encourage those in the church. We should be so zealous to be a help to others that we beseech the Lord to help us improve the gifts he already has given us, and if it be his will, to grant us new gifts that will make us more useful to the church. Now, I am not saying that you should seek the gift of prophecy, since that was a foundational gift, along with the gift of apostleship, as I demonstrated when we went through the end of chapter 12. But there do seem to be plenty of other gifts that the Lord is still dispensing to his people today that will make you someone incredibly useful to his church teaching, service, exhortation, giving, leadership, showing mercy, and on and on it goes. Lastly, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what Paul says to his son in the faith. He says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh 
the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Just because we have a gift does not mean that we can rest on our laurels and grow stale in our giftedness. The fear of man, selfishness, and laziness can all counteract the giftedness that God has given us. Do you want to be useful to your master? Do you? Do you want to be useful to Jesus Christ? Or are you just believing in him because he gets you out of hell? If you have no desire to be useful to the Lord, you need to examine yourself and see if you're actually believing in who he is. Do you want to be useful to your master? If you pursue love, that is love for God and love for others, that giftedness will be fanned into flame and make you useful to your master, the Lord Jesus. Pursue love and seek to abound for the edification of the church. Let's pray.